one of, one of the hardest one of the hardest things is um, when there are enough of us here to or few of us here tonight to to explore something which the parasha deals with. I, I start off by explaining a few different nuances in the text and then we'll see where we go from there. Moshe Rabbeinu is about to die. The parasha begins, he's reached 120 and he's summing up in his last words some of the things that you're going to do before the Jewish people in the course of time. And he says that what's going to happen is um, sorry, before he, he says it, Hashem appears to him. God appears to him and says to him that what's going to happen is you're going to be laid to rest with your forefathers, with your ancestors. And this nation will come and they will go astray after strange gods and they will leave me and they will annul the covenant. They'll renege on the contract that we have made and on that day I will become upset with them and I will leave them and I will hide my face from them and they will be consumed and they will find them, they will befall upon them, they will occur to them. Raot, Rabot, Vitarot. Three words. Raot, bad things. Rabot, many, great. Vitarot, troubles, or more accurately, the word Tsar means narrow. Vabayomahu. And then he, that is the nation, will say on that day, because there is no God in our midst, in my midst. That's why these things happen to me. So the first textual nuance is the verse begins by saying, Raot, Rabot, Vitzarot, which means a three worded description of um, terrible things. They're bad, they're many. They are constricting. And then it says, the reason why these are happening is because there is no spiritual connection. There is no God amongst us. That's why Mitzauni Haraot, two of the words are subtracted and one is left. Rav Shach points out that the omission of the other two words indicates the decline in the degree of the suffering from the first declaration to the second. The first declaration is that there's a nation that, and it's a very hard concept to speak about, but a nation that strays from the expectations, from the agenda that the Creator had designed for them. And at that point in time when they've strayed, so the degree and the intensity of the suffering that they experience is triple, double, it's expanded, it's worse than when they make the following declaration. And the de declaration they make is, is not an acknowledgement of full tshuva, it's just a statement of fact. The reason why things are going wrong is because we've lost the connection to God. 
but the minute they admit that they, the reason for it going wrong is because there's no God amongst them, so that realization limits the pain of the suffering. So the point I'd like to expand upon is what exactly is that interaction? In other words, and this is why it's a tricky point because and people go through tremendous hardship, but it's an inevitable, inevitable part of life. Suffering, hardships, difficulties are part and parcel of, if not daily life, weekly life or monthly life. It's impossible to, to get along with life and without hitting snags the whole time. And the degree and intensity of the difficulty and the suffering that we go through to varies from person to person. You see some people who, when you look at it, look at it from without, it seems incomprehensible what they're going through. Other people, it seems that the level of their suffering is slightly less. But there's not a person in the world that I'm aware of that doesn't go through some type of hardship. Over here, there's an expiration of a national tragedy, a national suffering. And there's a particular approach. Uh, the verse goes on and says as follows. And I will surely hide my face on that day. I'll call on all the because of all the bad they've done because they've turned to strange gods so there's this notion of a hiding of a face Hashem hides his face now when you hide your face what it means is that you put on a mask interestingly enough the the Gomorrah in Megillah the Talmud in Megillah says that the source it has a series of questions regarding a source in the five books of Moses in the Chumash for the characters that play the primary roles in Megillat Esther. They ask where do you see Mordechai hinted to in the Torah, where do you see Haman hinted to in the Torah, where do you see Esther hinted into in the Torah and the hint that Esther is part of the Torah comes from this verse Va'anochi haster astir Esther, astir Esther and I will hide my face. Now Purim is the greatest revelation that the Jewish people experienced in exile. But it was a very strange kind of revelation. It was a revelation which was to the naked eye an invisible revelation. It was a chain of events whereby there was a decree against the Jews and then a particular individual heard others plotting an assassination attempt at the king. That person happened to submit their names, the people were executed. He was then later on put into a position of power and the whole way the things turned, if you looked at the, 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 the way the Megillah sums up its final words are, and these stories are chronicled in the, the chronicles of the kings of Persia and Medea. Meaning there was nothing religious about the story of Purim. There's nothing overtly spiritual, nothing overtly providential in the description of events. We are now living in a time of Galus, which means we're living in a time of called Hester Panim, hidden face. Hidden face means that the Creator relates to us with a mask. Now the problem with the mask is you don't see the real identity of a person. When you don't see the real identity of the person, it's very hard to grasp who they are because they're coming with a veil over their eyes. So, what I'd like to do 
is trying to explore how the process of suffering can somehow lead us towards the removal of the mask in front of the face of the Creator. That's an idea. Now, it's an idea which we can speak about. Ultimately, it's not going to really answer any problems because it's not a question that can be answered with an answer because suffering is an ongoing process. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a question-answer. It's a processing. Suffering is, a, is something that, that we deal with on a daily basis and it's something that a person has to... But what we can perhaps suggest is a certain level of approach. Okay. Now, I'd like to ask you... The, the different ways of describing it. The most obvious analogy for suffering um, but we have to expand upon it is that game you see over there in front of you. Mm-hmm. You can all of course see the connection if you, if you don't mind, Bookie. Um, yeah, if, you, if you'll pass the game over to me. So, so the game is it's a, a series of metal rods two metal rods and there's a ball that is suspended between the metal rods now in order to get the ball to move forward so then you have to open up the rods now the reason why the ball moves forward is because the rods stop the ball starts to drop between them but unless you reconnect the sides of the ga- of the rods together so then the ball falls down. Now the goal is to get it to the end point um, a difficult task. The way it works is the only way the ball can go up is by going down. That's the way it works. In other words, the minute it starts that what, what creates the momentum, the impetus for it moving upwards is the fact that it descends. In Gomorrah this is called that in order for a person to go up, he has to go down. Now, one of the ways of going down is when things don't go well. Things going well means a person has a... He has to dip. But the dipping that a person experiences ultimately causes a lifting up. But there's a few preconditions. When you're, a person hits a situation which is uncomfortable, unsatisfying, and disturbing, what is the natural response? Something goes wrong. What is the natural response? Why? Why me? Cry out. Anger. Anger. Why me? Cry out. Anger. Okay? Annoyance put in the picture, we're in the middle of discussing, discussing suffering, which is probably what most of the people in the share are experiencing right now. I wanted to make it very real. So, <laughs> so I'm putting him through the pain. So we have one individual at the end of the table who's suffering to stay awake. <laughs> Different degrees. What we're suggesting is as follows. Suffering, when, you, when, when, when the clap hits, so the natural response is, why me? You cry out, anger, annoyance. Let's go through them. Why me? What why me means, it's a fascinating approach, and that's the one I was looking for. Why me means 
this thing that's happening shouldn't be happening to me. Maybe it should be happening to someone else, but there's nothing that is problematic with myself that this thing is directly meaningful for me. One of the most difficult parts of suffering is that this terrible pain that I'm experiencing has no source inside of myself. It's random. Here I am going along my way and then I'm given some type of horrible experience and there's no causality between my person, my being and the experience that I'm countering. Now, an extension of the why me approach to suffering is the pointing fingers approach. That once you've expressed your desire that there's no causal connection between why this happened to me, if there's a source to who visited that problem upon you, so it becomes their problem. So what the why me response to suffering can often engender is what's called, in modern terminology, um, a victim mentality. That a person looks upon himself as a victim of circumstances, of relationships, of a variety of different things. And what the victim mentality does is it shifts the onus of change and responsibility outside of the personal sphere and onto the external sphere. Yeah, surely that if, if somebody says, why me, it, should, it shouldn't be me, it should be somebody else, that's going to make them maybe feel worse, make them feel bitter. Why is it me? Why? It's not a... It's not, a, it's not a good way of thinking to a certain extent because you're going to suffer even more. Absolutely. But then, you, 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 I mean, could you not say as well that I'm suffering because maybe I've done something that's, Correct. that's making... This, what I've done, this is the reason why I'm suffering. Or you, you look at things and you think, I'm suffering. What's the reason why I'm suffering? Maybe I've done this wrong, that wrong, whatever. In other words, that would be the opposite to the whammy. That would be the opposite. In other words, the why me, what I'm saying is the why me, I, w I would think, is the knee-jerk natural response that a person has. Right. What you're suggesting is a much more sophisticated, thought-out approach. But I think the natural response when something goes wrong with a person's life is anger. Anger is the same thing. Anger means that I wanted things to go this way. Now they're going not the way I want them to do. How can that be? Can't be. I need to be at work at this time. And now the tube came and was full and I couldn't get in the door and now I'm going to be late no sorry I'm getting upset just at the thought <laughs> so, so <laughs> and even so still the, you, the better question was when was the last time I worked <laughs> so the, the whammy approach is the shifting of, but you understand exactly what you're saying. It's a shifting. When a person does respond, the anger is the same thing. The anger is that this is the way it should be, and it's the things outside of me that are causing the problems. It's nothing internal that's causing the problem. It's something external that's causing the problem. Now, the minute you ex experience and you respond to suffering in the way of why me, in other words, the shifting of the blame onto others and not accept accepting responsibility in terms of your own your own sphere of experience of, of challenge so then you become trapped because the only person you can ever work with in your life is yourself I hate to break this to you <laughs> for those control freaks amongst us the only person you can ever work with in your entire lifetime and if you think otherwise not only you're mistaken but you're dangerous the only person you can ever work with is yourself you can inform others you can guide others you can offer them potential but you can't control anyone the only person in the world you can ever control is yourself and similarly the only person that can control you is yourself what the victim mentality has as its paradigm is
me is being controlled by them. The reason why I scratch my ears in public, I don't, not in England. The reason why I scratch my ears in public is because as a small boy, my bubba scratched her ears. So, so therefore, it's, what can I do? She controlled me. The reason why I don't tuck in my shirt is because my uncle never tucked in his shirt. And you could, the minute you relate to life in that way, so what you've done is you've removed yourself from the picture. I don't agree with that. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, <laughs> because, like, I understand you say, why me? But sometimes it's not the victim mentality. Like, you know, the saying of, like, why do bad things happen to good people? So the people aren't necessarily... So, um, giving the responsibility onto someone else, but sometimes the punishment doesn't equal the crime. Like, a murderer gets away with, like, whatever, never gets caught, and somebody who's had something really, really bad happen to them, and maybe they do sit and they think, like, what did I do? What can I work on? Did I maybe, like, break Shabbos or eat non-crochet food or whatever? And they're, like, so they're not taking the responsibility away from themselves, but, it w but a situation could be somebody else's fault, for lack of a better word. Describe the situation. I don't know, just like you get dishonest people in the world, and you know, you hear all the time of like people who would um, lie to each other or con each other. You could be From your personal life, do you have an experience that you can quote? That, Not that you that don't. I can quote, but oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking of, yeah. But aren't some people just kind of Hashem's tools for. Not, it's not the wrong place at the wrong time, but it's not, they're not there. There's no justice? Um, I don't know how to, to say, like a good person, something bad happening to them, I can only think of, I don't know, I need to think <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> so, you're right, we, we, we'll have to deal as well with why do good things happen to bad people, but let's deal with us. We're not good people. <laughs> no, not, I don't mean to disappoint you. We're n I'm not saying that we're not good people. We are fantastic worse people. people than us. They are <laughs> a lot worse people than us. They certainly. But in other words, when I say we're not good people, um, I'm really referring to Ben. <laughs> when I when I say when I know when I say we're, we're not good people, what I mean is that we can't really stand up and say, well, you know, if I think about myself and it's coming up beyond Kippur, and I'm trying to think, did I do anything wrong last year? And I'm thinking. Of, no, <laughs> no, there, wa there wasn't a single word of slander that I spoke. Um, I never slighted anyone. I never got angry. I never, no, I never had any challenges of integrity. I never, no, I never, no. no. So, 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 if we could say that, so then, so then that would be a big question. But there's no shortage of stuff inside ourselves that we've got to look in more deeply. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so, so, so let's not put on to why good, bad things happen to good people because we deal with bad people. I mean, I mean not bad. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're, not, we're not dealing with Sadiqim Gamoya. We're not dealing with perfect Sadiqim. So let's see why do bad things happen to us. <laughs> so, wait, so, so again, first, first, first thing, the way one could approach it is this shouldn't be happening to me. Now, this shouldn't be happening to me and it's extension of it's his fault which is not necessarily always connected, but is often connected. So that creates a sense of where a person is left powerless. 
So now I can't do anything because it shouldn't be happened to me. So therefore I have nothing to do about it. And he did it to me and therefore it's his problem. Do you understand? So now what do I do? So now you've trapped the person. You've actually trapped the person. In other words, you've trapped yourself. However, give me another approach. The other approach is everything that happens to you, every single thing that happens to you, should be happening to you. Everything that happens to you which is good should be happening to you. Everything which happens to you which is bad should be happening to you. Every bad thing that happens should dafka be happening dafka to you. Sorry. But then shouldn't you ha- get a lesson out of it? Precisely. Step two. Uh-huh. Step two. If it should be happening to me, so now the question is, yes, it's no longer why me, it's rather, what is it coming to teach me? It's a very different question. It's not, why did it happen to me? I know that it happened to me for a reason. The question is, what is it coming to teach me? Not why me, but what is it coming to teach me? What is it coming to allow me to move forward in? Now, the general description in Hebrew of, it's quite interesting, the two words which are used interchangeably to describe suffering is also the same word which is described ethical perfection. Musar and Musar. Musar and Musar. Musar is the way that's used to describe how a person works on himself and makes himself a better person. And Musar is how you describe suffering that happens to a person. Any difference in spelling or violation? None. Sometimes. <laughs> but the concept is the same. In other words, what, and what Musa does, let's talk about what ethical work means. What ethical work means, when you work on your persona, it means you open up the dark stuff inside of yourself, all the things that we don't like to look at, and you start to deal with them. You start to, you start to process and to work on yourself. As well as you, you basically you open up yourself and you look at inside yourself and you see, do you know what? There's a lot of good, and do you know what? There's a lot of bad. In other words, Musa is when you confront yourself. Musa is when you confront yourself. What suffering causes a person to do, in a very very blunt fashion, he confronts. He has to confront himself. It forces a person to come to terms with every single one of the inadequacies. And it forces a person to come to terms with their frailty, and it first forces a person to come to terms with themselves. Now, if at that point in time you run away, you've lost the greatest opportunity in your life. What happens if someone's afraid of confrontation? So then you, that's, you run away. You run away. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Because if you can't confront, in other words, let's now set the scene. So, so what happened over here? So they were wrong, so I was so sorry, they were terrible. But then when there's Elokai, when I realized the reason for it, so then it still didn't take it away. They're still suffering. But it limited the, 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 the it, it, it decreased it. In what way did it decrease it? It took away the tsarot. Tsarot means that tsar, narrow. When you, there's no Hashem, so what the suffering does is it becomes a narrowing experience. It limits you. When you have Hashem, there's no narrowness. Suffering expands you. You see a person that suffers and they respond to the suffering as a challenge. They become much bigger, broader, deeper than they were before. Much bigger. I mean, we all in our own minds can think of examples, but there's some national examples. The, um, the woman that lost her husband and children in Toulouse. No, it's incomprehensible to me how she gets out of bed in the morning, but she doesn't just get out of bed. 
she has written articles on it she has gone around the world speaking about how she's learned from grown from filled with faith so now that woman however great she was before this tragedy occurred she became even greater and bigger after it occurred so the suffering and I can assure you she's experiencing pain but it's not a constricting pain there's nothing wrong with pain just that it hurts it's not bad it just hurts but hurting isn't bad hurting sometimes is a natural part of the process of growth so the first step in confrontation dealing with suffering is this should be happening to happening to me the second step is okay so how do I use how do I overcome the frailties that it's exposing to me how do I overcome those frailties to become bigger from it and not become crushed by it to become expanded not to become constricted and this thirdly is based on a fundamental premise the premise is that I've got a coach guiding my every step in life and he has my best interest at heart and he's setting the degree and the mode and the specific type of test precisely for my level as the Ramban says that the word Nisayon interestingly Nisayon which means test comes from the word Nais which means banner which means to lift up you lift up a banner so people can see it so nice means to lift up, to raise. And the Ramban adds, Nachmanides, that the purpose of the test is always for the good of one being tested, and he can always pass. What about, say, uh, I, mean, I was speaking to someone today who's a smoker, and I said to them I gave up smoking about 15 years ago. And when I spoke to this person who smoked, I could see on that person's face, you know, I turned around to them and said, you know, you should give up. And I could see on that person's face that they're not going to give up. You know, they, they, they've spoke, they've talked themselves into the fact that they're not going to give up smoking, although they know it's really bad. So that's a test, and they've, they've, they've said it themselves that they can't give up. What about, what about these tests that maybe Hashem gives us, that we're in that situation where you just talk yourself out of maybe what you should do, whatever. I never say And then so. constantly, is that, does that mean he's constantly sort of going to stick you with a, you know, sort of a thump of whatever? So, so, so the, this is an interesting, the, the, the Ramchal, the Moshe Chaim Lutzata, writes in the path of the just, an interesting idea. He says that a late, a late is a cynic, um, a scoffer. He brings suffering upon himself. What a, what a scoffer is, is, is as follows. A late is a person that takes something which is, has weight and he makes it light. He makes light of. So you often find that the way people avoid confronting things is by making a joke of it. So you go over to a friend and you say, you know, mate, you've been smoking for the last 20 years. Your lungs are as black as sable. You're, you're in trouble. Say, so what do you mean? Smoke a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> now, when you say that, boom, the entire impact of anything you're trying to get him to experience is, is completely and completely dissolved. With one joke, if you make light of something, so even though it, what what I said to you was absolutely true, but when you make it, when you make a snide remark, you destroy. It. Has no, has no. So a person that approaches life and he has the capacity to do that, to make a joke out of things, he can never change. Hmm. So the Ramchal says, but what happens when you change? When he gets a clap, 
So then you can't make a joke out of that. Then he changes. So he says, a person who's a late, he brings the Yisurim upon himself because that's the only option left to him. Nothing else works. But a person who's intelligent, what you do is you preempt needing to have to come on to suffering by finding the problems and the, the blind spots in your persona and working on them. And then you don't need to come out to that. You, you, you preempt it. You, you take things seriously beforehand. Does Muslim involve working on our frailties, our weaknesses only then? Or Absolutely is not. The essential focus on Muslim would be focusing on your strengths and not on your weaknesses. That's a separate topic. Okay, that's to be discussed at another stage. But, just to sum up, because I'd like to go into the next thing. So, in other words, just what we're doing now is we're just scratching the surface, opening it up, giving you thoughts to ponder and to develop and think about by yourself. Because, again, you can't give glib answers for suffering. Especially when you see the intensity and the difficulty and the details of people suffering. It's very easy in a sheer format to say, it's suffering, this is the way it works, you know, from, from the podium. When you suffer, this is the way you... Of course not. But it just gives us little lights and ways to think and, and then confront the suffering and then retract and say, but that didn't work and then deal with it. That's, that's, that's all I'm trying to do is just open up avenues. End of avenue number one. Let's go on to something completely different. The next thing in the Chumash that I'd like to discuss is this week's Pasha, Moshe Rabbeinu introduces a mitzvah to the Jewish people. This mitzvah is called Mitzvah's Hakel. Hakel means that at the end of the seven-year agricultural cycle, there'd be six years where the Jews would work the land in Israel, and on the seventh year they'd do something which would be a very unwise agricultural technique. They would stop planting produce and stop harvesting produce. So essentially what would happen is the nation would last seven years and then they'd all die of starvation, or most of them. Um, that's 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 one of the reasons why in these uh, discovery seminars, one of the one of the ways that they rationalize that the choice given by God is that there would be no man so stupid to set up a religion <laughs> which would like lose eighty percent of his members every seven years <laughs> when you're living on a very strongly agricultural based society, and they say, by the way, seventy years don't work the land. What's going to happen? It's just going to be okay. <laughs> Everyone dies and you go, gosh, it would be like a seven-year-old religion. Then you always say, oh, that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> now after seeing like their family starved death, they think, mm, maybe next time we won't go for this. Mm. So it's, it's a fascinating mitzvah. What happens is, so just think about it. And it worked. It worked. So that, that's, that's quite reassuring. <laughs> it worked. So seven years. So at the end of the seventh year, they've gone through the seventh year. Seventh year end, ends with Rosh Hashanah. New year begins. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and then on Sukkot there's this mitzvah. Every Jewish man, woman, and child piles up to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, goes to the Temple Mount. They all they all congregate. I don't know how they fitted it in, but it must have been quite squashed. I mean, I've been there on some <laughs> you know, just the average bus in Israel. Gives you a sense of what it would be like. And you've got these people. And again, I'm assuming it was Israeli style, and not they were like neat queues, people thing. Hello. Oh, you're going in front of me. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like always a miracle when you go to these mass Jewish events in Israel that you always feel somewhat glad that you weren't suffocated and stampeded. Um, so, so you get the Jewish people packing, packing into Jerusalem, into the Temple Mount, and then the king, 
the king direct this makeshift bima and the um, the king reads a large chunk of the Sefer Torah from primarily from Mishnah Torah including the admonitions etc and he reads it to the nation and that's called Mitzvah Nakel it happens once every seven years Dafka at that time so Reb Shimshim Hirsch goes into explaining I think which is for us a crucial point he says look at the timing you've got the Jewish people they went through a a cycle of six agricultural years and then there's a seventh year which is a Shemitah cycle it's a Shemitah year so <coughs> essentially for, for one year for one year they didn't do any physical labor now that was a year of spiritual reflection of the study of Torah of thinking about um, their purpose in life it was a year where they weren't involved in commercial activity so you can imagine the kind of lofty spiritual height that they'd reached by that point in time they come to the end of the year and they have a Rosh Hashanah and they have a Yom Kippur and then they have a Sukkot. And you can imagine at that point in time their spiritual growth is hitting a climax. So at that point in time what would naturally happen is they think the state I'm in right now will persist forever. There's no reason to do anything else but to just live in the moment because the moment will contain and hold and maintain itself. At that point in time they all get together and the king comes, who's the ultimate, the supreme representative of the Jewish people, and he reads to them from the Torah. Now this is not, <coughs> the purpose of this reading of the Torah is clearly not the mitzvah of teaching Torah or learning Torah, because that's a mitzvah which is every day, it's not once every seven years. It's some other mitzvah, something else. So what's the, what's the significance of this, this huge event where the king goes and in front of everyone he proclaims and reads the Torah. So Rabbi Shemus says, you pick this point in time where it's the transition between going from the spiritual world, as it were, spiritual elevation, back into the physical world. And he says, there's one crucial thing that you have to understand at that point in time. This is something which is quite interesting. If you think that the high that you're experiencing now has an independent ability to exist inside of you, you are sorely mistaken. The moment that you're experiencing at this point in time will dissipate. And if there's nothing that will allow you to cling onto it, to maintain it, you will completely lose everything you've gained. And therefore, at that point in time, the king says, Hashem made a covenant with us, and the covenant was revolved around the Torah. And that's the significance of this, this huge demonstration of importance and emphasis. The Torah is what keeps us connected. Because what the Torah does is it provides a framework for that inspiration to land. Without that framework, it doesn't land. Now, I was, as I was landing this morning, it was a fantastic landing. But I noticed something. That there could be a variety of different ways of landing a plane. One way would be to nosedive. Now, I don't know how pleasant that would be for anyone. But in other words, when the descent is too steep, so you crash. There's nothing left of the plane. The other way is that you just, you just don't go down, but then you never get to the ground. You just keep on flying in the air. If you want to land a plane, what you have to do is you have to go down and you have to make sure that at the point when you're about to touch the land, 
you're flying parallel to the ground so that your your descent is a tiny tiny slight inclination but you're almost identical in other words the flight and the ground are at the same level they're going the same way at that point in time then you can land and you can land safely so in order to create that parallelism that ability to land you have to take you once you've reached that height you can't drop down you have to slowly but surely reorientate yourself until you're flying parallel to the ground now the only way to allow that spiritual descent to occur in a healthy way is not to lose it because when you lose it so then it's there and it's gone it's not something which has a um, a means of gradual it's not something which when it descends will allow you to land it will disappear and allow you to crash so therefore what the Torah does is and I think this is maybe pertinent for us when we in a period of time which is unique in the year because we've just experienced the Rosh Hashanah and before Rosh Hashanah we experienced an Elul and now we're in the midst of the Aseret Yemei Tshuva which means there is something I think a lot of people some people more than others but certainly all of you have experienced have experienced some type of some type of elevation there's something there's something special about these times and uh, we're heading towards Shabbos Shiva and then there's Yom Kippur and often on Yom Kippur especially on reaches a climax in the Ella that you reach this something you fasting and something inside of you clicks and you have some type of realization and at that point in time you say okay from now on everything is going to change and three days later nothing changed there's an interesting marshal that Rip Shalom Shvadron says about the shtetl I'm assuming it's a shtetl it's always safe to assume with these Shalom if they shtetl unfortunately in this one could you put in a king? very possibly uh, let's put in a king Fox? Hey? Fox? Fox? No, no fox. But there's a king and we can even give him a castle. Castle with a neighboring forest, as there always is. Um, this king has a daughter. And um, the daughter's about to get married. And everyone's excited. The entire town is overjoyed. And the prince who's marrying her comes to the town. Now, the townspeople they're rich and they're poor and the poor people feel ashamed to attend the wedding in their rags so what they do is they go to the rich people and they ask to borrow clothes and the prince looks at the guests at the wedding and he sees that the entire city has come and he's astonished he says you know I've never been to a city where the average person is so wealthy it's unbelievable you look at these people and they dressed with beautiful finery this is an incredible place to be so the princess who's wise to what's going on says wait wait don't pass judgment until two days time they have the wedding they hang around for two days and then the prince and princess go for a stroll in the streets and the prince is astonished he says, one second he says two days ago these people were dressed in the finest of all finery and now they're wearing rags so there's an element of that when you when you're in that context of 
um, you're on Yom Kippur and you feel the inspiration and the energy is, is, is overwhelming and you get lifted up and you think to yourself, my life is going to be different from now onwards and you put on the finery that you borrowed from someone else and then it lasts for different periods of time but very often very short periods of time until you back in rags. So how do you integrate it? How do you actually make it something which is sustainable? sustainable? So the Mitzvah says the only way to sustain inspiration is not to rely on inspiration. Because inspiration is fickle. It comes and goes. If you want to maintain inspiration, you have to concretize it into a specific framework and give it boundaries and give it delineations and see where one thing starts and another stops. And when you do that, so then the inspiration will come and go. But you as a person will change. And then the inspiration was invaluable. Because what the inspiration did is it allowed you an entrance into a framework where that framework will change your life forever. And that framework will keep you in a particular pathway. And that's why at this point in time, the king gets together and he proclaims to the Jewish people, I'm telling you now, if you stick to this, you're going to go straight and you'll be fine. And you can go back into the working world and you can go back out of this state of spiritual elevation and you'll be perfectly and 100% okay. But if you align the spiritual elevation in its own right, so then you'll be left bereft of everything. Well, maybe not everything. Second point. Third point quickly. That was Rapshim for Hirsch. Um, the Ma'or Shemesh, he says uh, another interesting idea which is kind of intuitive because our, d- our idea of spirituality is a little bit like the okay, this is a very old Jewish joke um, it's not only old but it's also outdated so very possibly I'll be the only one in the room that will laugh but I think it's worth it for me <laughs> Mrs. Goldstein for some reason developed a passion for Buddhism strange. She's 62. She lives in LA. And she starts to attend um, Buddhist retreats, meditation classes. And she has a passion and an interest until, of all the people um, in the class, she's chosen to go on a pilgrimage to the I was going to say the Rebbe, but that's probably the wrong wrong expression. Um, to the to, to the guru. Um, to the guru who's, who's sitting on top of a mountain in southern Tibet and it's a grueling grueling she, she gets one of these um, the locals just go escort up the mountains she's with a group of another four privileged individuals and they get to the top of the mountain and they are invited to have an audience just for a few moments with the guru and he'll give them some secrets where they'll be able to meditate perhaps for the rest of their lives and the first person goes in comes out deeply enlightened and, the sec- and eventually it's Mrs. Goldstein's turn and she goes in and she comes out and she looks quite distraught and teary-eyed and um, the people say to her, Ms. Goldstein, what happened? What did, what did you say to the guru? She said, I said, Sheldon, come home. <laughs> 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 now the funniest part about the joke is Sheldon. No, <laughs> what a classic name. Beautiful. Um, but the general perspective of um, Spirituality, in our intuitive sense of the word, is that it's the ascetic who sits on top of the mountain. Uh, the Moravashemish gives a completely different and, in fact, diametrically opposed 
presentation of what spirituality is, and he, he reads it into the verse. The verse says as follows. Um, when the Jewish people come to see the face of Hashem, they want to get exposure, as it were, to the Creator. Read this Torah. Read this Torah in front of them, um, into their ears. And then the verse continues, Hakel Bring together the nation. Ha'am, ha'nashim, v'ha'nashim, v'ha'taf. Men, women, and children. V'gerach ha'sheh And the strangers. The way the Mor of Hashemish reads this verse is that if you want to see Hashem, read this Torah into the ears of the people, which means tell them that the way to get the way to get the Jewish people together the way to get the Jewish people together the way to see sorry the way to see the face of Hashem is hakel et am get the people together the more community is the more spirituality there is ironically spirituality is not built from ascetism and isolation spirituality is built on connection now that's interesting why would that be why would it be that because I can connect you and you and you and you, and because we unite as a nation, therefore we, we, we should be more spiritual, maybe we should be more emotionally in touch, but more spiritual. So the Alt of Kalm, in the very first piece in his work, Chochmah Musa, he says a fascinating point. One of the ways that the Torah is acquired, it's called Noise Ba'olim Chaveyo, a person that bears a yoke with his friend. It's a means of acquisition of Torah. And he asks the question, he says, why is it a means of acquiring the Torah? Acquiring the Torah is an intellectual pursuit or it's, it's working on oneself, but having empathy for someone else, that it causes me a connection to the acquiring of the Torah. And he says, acquiring the Torah really is the ability to appreciate the spiritual world. So why should my friendship, my feeling of your pain, allow me access into the spiritual world? And then he says a vote, which again is just scratching the surface of something which is fundamental. He says, the only way you can ever connect deeply to another person is if you get rid of the boundaries which separate you and the boundaries which separate you inevitably are a result of the fact that when you relate to yourself you don't relate to the essence of yourself but you relate to the periphery of yourself your wants your desires if you go into the core of your being you realize that you and the person facing you are one and at that point in time you simultaneously transcend the physical and you get to the point of spirituality inside of yourself. At that point in time, you can have true unity. Ironically, the test of a person's spirituality is his ability to get along with other people. And the failure to get along with other people is a barometer to measure a person's spiritual size. And if he can't, he's small. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs>